from Share Cancer Support. This is a special bonus episode of the RMBC Live podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm happy to release this unabridged version of our interview with Shirley Mertz from this past spring. Shirley is a leading advocate in the NBC community who has a bio a mile long. We get to hear some great history of NBC advocacy through her perspective, and it's fascinating. This is part of our summer programming as our team works on the stories and issues we will cover in season three that lands in September. Here's our conversation with Shirley Mertz. My name is Shirley Mertz, and I'm very honored and privileged to be with all of you today to share my story and hopefully help other people. I am currently the president of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network, a national organization that seeks to educate and inform metastatic breast cancer patients and help them become advocates for themselves and for others. I also am the past chair of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, And I also serve on a couple of SPORs, which are research efforts at two different universities. Thank you. And welcome, Shirley. Take us back to the beginning where when you were first diagnosed all those years ago and from the beginning and tell us uh, a little bit what that was like for you. I began my journey with breast cancer in 1991. A small lump with calcifications was found in my left breast, and it was suggested that I either have a a lumpectomy followed by radiation, or I could consider a mastectomy. I decided to have a double mastectomy, always going more than required is my name, but I said I wanted to do that because I had two small sons. And I wanted very much to be their mother, and at least until they uh, reached adulthood. So a double mastectomy was done. The diagnosis was hormone positive breast cancer. I asked if I should have any other treatment. And I was told by two doctors, no, because of a biopsy and because of a second opinion. So I said, surely this is going to be your message to people. Tell them why a biopsy is important, not only because it defines the tumor and its characteristics, but you might just find out that you are, your disease is different than your early stage. Not always, but it can happen. And then be sure you work with someone that is knowledgeable about metastatic disease, treats a number of people because that's important too. And my first foray, you've done more than you really needed. I did follow up with annual checkups all was going well. And then 12 years later, I had a pain in my chest area, a rib cage, a scan was ordered, there was nothing wrong there. But ultimately, what was found were uh, spots on my spine. And by a biopsy of my spine, it was determined that my breast cancer had spread to my spine in about four places. And I was really shocked. You asked me how I felt. I thought, what more could I have done? Of course, people, I didn't realize at the time that just because you take off your breasts doesn't mean that you're cured of breast cancer. And no one told me I was exactly, but I really thought that would make a difference. So I hunted for a doctor. I went to a community center that was rather close to me and was told that because I had hormone breast cancer during my early stage, hormone positive, that he would give me an anti-hormone agent and that he would check me in a year to see how things were going. And I thought, okay, he said, takes time for an anti-hormone agent to work. However, a couple months after that, I saw my primary care doctor and he said, what? No, you don't wait a year. You've had to be checked more than that. So I went back to the uh, first oncologist and he ordered another PET scan. And by then my breast cancer had spread throughout my skeleton and into my liver. 
then I was really scared. And he proceeded to tell me he didn't think it really was in my liver. And I'm thinking, I'm not hearing good responses here. So the key to my story is that I made a decision to get a second opinion at a national comprehensive cancer center with an oncologist who treats many metastatic breast cancer patients. And before she, she, when I met with her, she said, Shirley, before I will treat you, I want to do a biopsy in your liver to see as much as I can, to find out as much as I can about your breast cancer. So when that was done, it was determined that my breast cancer was no longer hormone positive, but rather HER2 positive. So that informed a target of treatment of Herceptin. I did take some chemotherapy, uh, Zolota. I didn't know at the time that you could take something uh, that wouldn't cause you to lose your hair. So that was a plus. And after 10 months on this regimen, these two agents, a scan, a PET scan was done again, and there was no evidence of disease, which stunned me. It stunned the fellow who was working with my oncologist. And my oncologist said, you're not cured, but what we will do is take you off off the chemotherapy and we'll continue the Herceptin. And so I pretty much went for about seven, eight years taking the Herceptin, showing no evidence of disease. And then quickly, just not so this this is a long story, but I did have a recurrence in my greater trochanter, which is my left hip where your thigh joins to your hip and a progression in one lymph node in my left, near my left clavicle area. And I just, uh, a biopsy was done of the um, lymph node. And it was discovered that now my breast cancer, metastatic disease has, had returned to hormone positive. Wow. And still was HER2 positive. And so what I did is I underwent a new technology that I heard about at one of the conferences that Metastatic Breast Cancer Network put on, and that was called Stereotactic Radiation Therapy. Mm-hmm. So the doctor who was at the University of Chicago, whom MBCN later supported with a research grant at, long after I got his treatment, but through radiation, it was like it was ablated. It was just like someone operated and removed those two spots. And so that was in 2014. And most recently, I had a PET scan and I, I continue to have no evidence of disease. I take an anti-hormone agent every day. I did stop the Herceptin because I had been on it a long time. And so that's my story with metastatic disease. I'm very blessed. I'm sure there will come a time when the estrogen, anti-estrogen agent becomes resistant. But at this time, I'm trying to make the best of my time. And I will tell you, Shirley, that I'm on a clinical trial right now. I'm hormone positive right now. And I'm on a clinical trial that is for people who have progressed on an anti-hormone, like Ibrance, for example. So I'm testing out for your next line, Shirley. I got you covered. I want to thank you for participating in a clinical trial. And one of the things that my, one of my advocacy platforms, if you want to call it, or goals is to help educate women and men about the importance of being on a clinical trial, because every treatment that we have, what we call a standard treatment is the product of a clinical trial. And it's brave women like you, Lisa, and others Mm -hmm. say they will join to test a new treatment against a standard treatment. So it's so important. I thank you for that. And I uh, hope that the results continue to be good for you. Thank you. Me too. I have to say. So let's talk about your work in advocacy. So you did briefly mention just now the MBCN. So let's talk about that. Again, you're going to talk about maybe what happened before you founded the MBCN. But how did you decide to get into advocacy? And what were those initial days like early on? If you really wanted to know the core of what Shirley is about, Uh, and I have been thinking a lot about this as I grow older, you reflect on your life. I would have to say two things. I love to learn. I was always a a learner and enjoyed it. In fact, I was valedictorian of my high school class. (laughs) Uh, Small little thing, but my son says, mom, be proud of that. Okay. Secondly, in addition to love of learning, I love to teach. I love to share something that I might know with someone who might be struggling 
Or I might say, you might need this. And so my life was spent, I became a high school teacher. Uh, I taught political science and government, which helped me with my advocacy work. I went to law school and passed the bar. And what I found is by merging my my situation where I had a great result into advocacy was I attended a conference that was put on in by the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network that was founded in 2004. And I couldn't believe, I thought, wow, this is interesting. And it wasn't very large, but I joined the network. And then we proceeded, we had, oh, we had a wonderful group of women. And we put on nine national conferences, breast cancer conferences, each at a different comprehensive cancer center. It was tailored for metastatic patients. That was the subject. We invited experts at the Comprehensive Cancer Center that was sponsoring with us. And we would talk about not only treatments, but we'd talk about how you get through to have a good quality of life. How do you develop that mental part of the disease, which is so hard, wrapping your mind around why me? And how do I get through this? What do I tell my children? Oh, those are so many topics. The other part I think is important is because I love to learn, I never was much of a science student, but I found the National Breast Cancer Coalition and it had a wonderful project lead course. In fact, I attended three different ones. They were five to six days in length. And the first one project lead was about the biology of breast cancer and how do you become an advocate? And so that really grounded me, made me feel more that I could get in front of a group of either patients or whomever, and speak with clarity and and some information. So it was a combination of my own experience, having the opportunity to get informed about science, and then my love of learning and teaching that really has taken me through my advocacy work even to today. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Project LEAD, and I, I didn't realize that makes sense that you were one of the first ones to probably go through that program, right, back when it started. I think it was 2005. They had two other, they call it Project LEADs, but one was about quality care, and the other was about clinical trials. What happened when I took the quality care, President Obama was in office trying to develop the, the Obamacare. Affordable the, Care Act, yeah. Thank you. And I, I thought, wow, this is something to work for because, and, and your people who listen to this, I guess I'm a historical person here, but back then when you had, you had to go to your doctor, insurance companies set a lifetime limit that could be spent on all of your care as well as annual the dollar limits. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, how does that help metastatic patients who are always in treatment? So that was, those were two things that the Affordable Care Act sought to uh, remove. Mm-hmm. And that was a very important, very important thing to pass. And, and then the last thing or the other, the third part of that was then back in the day, an insurance company could say, no, we're not going to insure you because you have a prior condition. That was another thing that really helped me, uh, set me about wanting to help get that passed. We have several questions for you, but you did mention President Obama. So I do think it's important for us to just note, how did it feel getting that pretty impressive award with President Obama? So in 2011, Shirley Mertz is awarded the Champion of Change in Breast Cancer by President Obama. Well, I'm going to correct you. I did receive the Champion of Change Award at the White House, but President Obama was not there. It was a little disappointing. But what what had happened is this was 2011, and President Obama really felt that, I think because he was a community outreach worker, Mm -hmm. he really felt that people could make a difference and, and that people, we need to tell them that they can make a change in a particular area. So he set up different categories. And one of the categories was breast cancer. And Mrs. Obama was aware of the struggles of so many women with breast cancer because she had worked at the University of Chicago, which is a well-known institution for dealing with patients with breast cancer. She was instrumental in asking, I think there were three groups, the National Breast Cancer Coalition, Susan G. Komen, and there was a third, I think it was Why Me, to 
each nominate three women or three people that they felt made a, a difference in, in changing the outcome of breast cancer in communities. And so I was nominated for this award by the National Breast Cancer Coalition, did go to the White House, but unfortunately, uh, President Obama didn't show up. But Mrs. Obama is just a wonderful person. And I was very proud, not only because Fran Visco obviously had to approve of my nomination, but also they did submit several names and it was the White House who made the final choice. So thank you. Congratulations again, deserved and how fun. Let's talk about today. Let's talk about the landscape today. So where do you feel, an advocate who's listening to this podcast, listening to you, what would you recommend they do? What do you think is most effective for advocates today in the policy and legislative arena? I first think it's very important for every person diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Number one priority is is themselves. They're getting good treatment from a good doctor participating in that treat in those treatment decisions, taking care of yourself and doing what you have to do to inform and embrace your family that loves you and are just as affected by this disease as you are. Looking within is not a selfish thing to do. It's necessary. But beyond that, I try to share the message to people that your story can resonate with other people. And that if we think about it, the way that we learn as human beings is through stories, whether when we were little and we had little storybooks that mom and or, and or dad would give us to read, the little engine that could, I love that one, there are others. So what I'm saying here is I try to say to people, no matter what your station in life, what your ethnicity or racial background, your story can make a difference to not only to helping other patients, but to get to your point about furthering issues that are important to the metastatic breast cancer community. And now, unlike when I was diagnosed in 2003, today women are living longer with their disease and that's wonderful. So it gives them more time to advocate on issues that probably weren't, they weren't around when I was first diagnosed. Example, brain mets. We really need a lot of more research on brain mets. And we also need to remove barriers to women whose brain mets have been treated so that they can be part of clinical trials. And you, Lisa, know as co-common member here of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, that we've had a research group that has really worked very hard on the issue of brain mets. And, And so that's good. So we each need to look at an issue One issue that I think is really important, and I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I'll just say one, is uh, liquid biopsies. Mm -hmm. I really think that if we could perfect, if researchers and scientists could perfect the use of liquid biopsies, that would transform our experience as patients because you and I still depend on scans to inform doctors how is our treatment working, do we need to change treatments, et cetera. And if that could be If we can have that same information accurately through a liquid biopsy, then that could help us a lot as we deal with issues. So did I answer in part your question? Yeah, for sure. I think that the certainly the liquid biopsy question in an area of research is really fascinating. And I think we all would agree with you on that. What's interesting, though, is about whether like, how is that covered? How is that paid for? And that's often where the rubber hits the road where I, on social media, you just have to go through med Twitter on any given Monday and you're going to see messages. I can't believe that I'm having pushback on this scan charge, or my doctor has recommended that I get this particular treatment. Say it is a scan, for example, but the insurance company is saying you had a scan three months ago. And of course, the metastatic breast cancer patient, heck, the the oncology teams are saying we're the doctors and we feel this is necessary because this person has a terminal illness and we need to monitor what's happening. This is still happening today, unfortunately. And you're right. It's worse than it used to be. I remember getting scans every three months and there was no problem. And now, as you point out, I had one scan this past year. Partly, I was hesitant to go into the hospital for the scan because of COVID. Sure. But, but no, they're really questioning. And that's why we 
that's one another issue. The healthcare issue is a very important has an important impact on patients of all metastatic patients of all cancer types. Yes, and we, we communicate. And this, and I know you had some. You had talked to me initially about interest in public policy. We can't assume that our congressional leaders understand what metastatic disease is about. When I was part of the National Breast Cancer Coalition and we would go to the Hill and we would have appointments with congressmen and congresswomen, but I mostly saw men back then, they would say, oh, another cancer group visited us. And we would say, wait a minute, we're talking about metastatic breast cancer. And that means we're always in treatment, that we depend on having access to quality treatments. So oftentimes breast cancer is lumped together in the month of, you know, October. And people think, oh, breast cancer is being taken care of. So long as you get your mammogram and catch it early, you will be cured. And those are another messages that we need to get out. Let's talk about October. Every year we get ready for October 13th. It's a very busy time for all of us who are in advocacy. One day, October 13th is one designated day for us living with metastatic breast cancer. Before there were no days, right? Before there was no acknowledgement. And so we should be grateful for having the one day that's acknowledged. But let's talk about that. It was a huge deal to actually get that one day designated. So can you talk a little bit about that? What it meant back then when it was first designated and then what it means to you now? Back in 2008, 2009, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network, which really was the first organization that was solely dedicated to metastatic disease. There there is another fine organization called Metaviver that I think developed about a year or two after hours that does great work. But in the early days or early decade of 2000, if we wanted someone to talk about metastatic disease, we had to beg uh, an organization that was dealing with early stage disease to say, could you have a moment for us to be part of your presentation or whatever? And so we thought we need to bring attention to the public. And yes, a group of uh, patients and family members, we, we gathered together and decided we would go to Washington, D.C. And the first thing that happened, I don't want to make this too long, but how this came about was that when I was a young girl in high school, I got an award called Girl State. And mm-hmm. the speaker was Marvella Bai. Her husband, Birch Bai, was the senator in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And she talked to us about shooting for the stars and going beyond thinking of just being a wife and a mother, though she said that was very important. She, she was very inspirational. Some years later, I learned that Marvello Bai died of metastatic breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And her son, Bai, yeah. was the senator. So I asked if he would consider introducing this legislation, a resolution. Mm-hmm. And to cut to the chase, we, there was about, I think, 12 of us that went to Congress Ultimately, people across the country who knew about MBCN wrote to their congressman and said, you need to support this resolution. Okay, so the resolution came about in 2009. We were thrilled. But now fast forward, what? From 2009 to 12 years later, one day is not enough. And I would be the first to say that. Were we proud of that we accomplished that? Yes. But I am so proud of Catherine O'Brien my colleague at the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network, who developed the idea of here all year, which you know about, Lisa, and was developed and created through the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, and really gets the message out that patients live every day with this disease, we're always in treatment, and don't think that we're just around on October 13th. I will say one thing that is happening is October 13th, has been used very heavily in Europe, Asia, and India, where advocacy is not so well developed. And they are where we were in the first decade of 2000, trying to get people to pay attention to Mm -hmm. metastatic disease. So I'm proud of the involvement that I had with the development of of Metastatic Breast Cancer Awareness Day. I'm even more proud of Catherine O'Brien, and I'm so Mm -hmm. glad that patients uh, are saying to people, don't just think about us one day. 
I love that you mentioned Catherine and her work on Here All Year. It's part of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, an initiative that's been going on where we highlight an issue related to metastatic breast cancer. And we actually do videos with individuals living with this disease. They talk about their disease and the particular issue. So it's been incredibly successful. So let's talk a little bit about the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. You were also instrumental in the founding of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. So why is coalitions like the Alliance important to you? Back like 2012, we would have monthly meetings, MBCN, and talk about we would reach out to an organization and say, we'd want to do something, but we need some money. Could you give us some money to attend a conference or whatever? And we finally said, we're always going to be beholden to trying to beg for resources or ask for help. Why can't we have organizations all work together? Because even if you, even at the time Coleman did wonderful work, but it was focused on early breast cancer, early stage. And they would sometimes give us some money to do something that we thought was important for advocacy. But then we were working with an organization, a pharmaceutical named Celgene, and I don't, they don't exist anymore. I think they were bought up or dissolved into some, another organization, but they said, why don't we would be willing to pay for different organizations to come to Pennsylvania, I think it was Philadelphia, gather together and asked if we couldn't create a a collaboration of everyone working together, because certainly Coleman has metastatic people or people who go from early stage to metastatic, other organizations, whether it be SHARE, whatever, see if we could all gather together. So we met in, I don't even remember the month, but we met together. We talked about how would we do this? We agreed finally that no one had to give up their mission. We weren't going to change an organization just in order for them to work together. But the goal was that anyone who wanted to join an alliance would say, we are devoted to the mission of helping further research and provide information and services to people living with metastatic breast cancer until someday in the future, a cure can be found. So that was the glue that tied us together. And so it was founded in really 2013. And the first goal was to establish or to do a landscape analysis of what's out there for research, what's out there for information, uh, services, to what extent are people aware of the disease. It was headed up by Mark Hurlbert, who was at the time a part of Avon. And he was not only, he was a scientist, and a great guy. And he headed, and and really, you talk about me being around for a long time, a wonderful woman named Yusa Mayer organization. And we put it together and we, the landscape analysis, a short version, a long version is on the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance website. And now during the time that I became chair, I suggested that we do another, revisit the landscape analysis to see what has changed and what do, what are our, still our challenges? And that's where the Alliance got started. So we collaborate. And now I can proudly say, and it's because of people who run the various breast cancer organizations, that any breast cancer organization that's a member of the Alliance has something on their website about metastatic breast cancer, some a lot more than others. But that's so wonderful because everybody has a different site where they feel comfortable and they get their information. And now the community is from zero stage to metastatic. And and that's good. We're together on this. Yeah. Thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit about the advocacy at the federal level and why that's important. The thing that you mentioned before, the financial toxicity that all of us experience, that funding, excuse me, insurance rules are primarily made at the federal level through Medicare. And if Medicare is willing to pay for things, then normally insurance companies will follow. And what happens to Medicaid, which many people, you know, have income or not enough income to have, be able to purchase care under the Affordable Care Act. So if their state offers Medicaid, that that will help them. At the federal level, we're talking about health insurance. We're also talking about the most recent initiative 
or policy change that was suggested that the two-year waiting period for a newly diagnosed person with metastatic disease to go on Medicare and receive uh, Social Security be the two-year waiting period be removed so that once a person is shown to be a metastatic breast cancer patient, that they be allowed, that they don't have to necessarily continue working, that they could get their insurance through Medicare and that they could start having Social Security payments. So that's another issue. So a lot of it has to do with insurance and, and things like chemotherapy. I think we still have 13 states that need to pass parity laws that would allow oral chemotherapy, like the one I told you that I take, to be considered as if I was getting it in my arm or in a port in the hospital. Some states say, oh, no, that you're calling it chemotherapy. Then it, because you're not getting in the hospital, we're going to say it's like a pill. And anyone who looks at their insurance policies, there's usually under prescriptions categories. And some categories could say, we'll cover this drug, but you have to pay 20% of the cost first. Or if it's a really high level uh, drug, you might have to pay 30%. If the chemotherapy could cost 5,000 a month, that's a huge amount of money for an individual to pay. I think that's the area of federal policy that, and I'm very pleased that we now have a, a president who really cares about cancer. I remember attending a conference where he and uh, his wife attended, Jill Biden spoke, his family has experienced cancer. And I'm just hopeful that soon he will be able to tackle that as an issue while he's dealing with the other things right now. Indeed. It also, we've had some traction with some initiatives at the local level, at the state level. Do you have any advice for advocates looking to make an impact at the local or state level? I think it's really important that you do not hesitate to have an interaction with your local or state policymaker. I know the one I have in Illinois often has these phone meetings where he will have constituents get on a phone call. He'll make a, you know, a comment about something and then he'll ask for people's points of view. But I think communicating with your local person about the needs that you have and others like us, the over 164,000 of us in the United States have with regard to metastatic disease is important so that they understand the difference between early stage and metastatic disease. And then concerns that you have that they keep in mind. If you if they have an is initiative that you want to see passed, tell them that you support it. And then you're going to call and try to get other people to join with you. So the NBC, a long-term goal of the NBCN was the change in SEER reporting, right? The way that the U.S. government actually tracks people living with metastatic breast cancer. And that change has been made. So tell us a little bit about that. And I know that and it's another thing that I think both you and Catherine O'Brien were involved in and others. So talk a little bit about that, because I think that's just another example of a long-term goal. It's in some ways been addressed. It's, it needs to be retroactive, but let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah, and good things, unfortunately, sometimes take time. And basically, for people who might be listening who, who may not be aware of what we're talking about, the federal government has counted in the past people who receive a breast cancer diagnosis. So back in 1991, I was counted, and, and that's done through your uh, medical provider, the hospital lets Sear know that they've had X number of people diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was true whether you were an early stage or if your first diagnosis was metastatic breast cancer. Unfortunately, though, the Sear uh, surveillance program did not take into account someone like myself who would have had early stage but then got a metastatic diagnosis. And that's important for understanding just how prevalent the disease is. What they had been do doing is counting your first diagnosis and then when you die so that they can report the number of new cases and the number of deaths. But if we're going to, again, make a difference for people living with a recurrence, 
we need to know how many people those are. Musa Mayer used to have a comment, you can't address what you don't know. So if you don't know how many metastatic breast cancer patients there are, you don't know how many of them need a certain service, et cetera. So a lot of the times when we brought this up, and I want to give credit to Catherine O'Brien, she was co-chair of the Awareness Task Force. Yep. Thank you. About <laughs> this movie. And she, with colleagues, developed Count Me In. And we were at a conference in Washington State, University of Washington. And I know there was a panel that spoke. I, I was one of the speakers. And what they had done, it was so amazing. All of the people, all of the many metastatic patients in the room had a little card that said, count me in. And it was impactful because you saw this huge room and they were saying, come on, don't don't count. And now the pushback to this was it took too much money to do this. The system would have to be revamped, et cetera. But we've gotten over that hurdle. And so hopefully with time, this will be uh, worked out so that we can have regular information. But I uh, applaud, again, this project that came under the umbrella of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance and Catherine O'Brien. So what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? You've got, you've been doing this for a long time and what's motivating you these days? I think this disease is hard. And if I sat here, I got my makeup on and I decided what was I going to wear? And you could look at me and say, she doesn't look like she has a care in the world. (laughs) But there are times, I have to admit, where this disease just is very hard to take mentally. Because the reality is people die. And although we have, it was very hard to accept the death of Sandy Spivey. She was my hero because she had lived, I'm living now my 18th year with this disease. And all I can say is I've been blessed. But when she passed away, it was hard for me because she was my hero. She lived, she had lived with this disease three years longer. So there was the incentive for me. But I think what keeps me going is the fact that one way to develop resilience and to overcome something bad that has happened to you is to say, I'm going to find the light in this dark tunnel. And for me, the light, going back to the kind of person I am, is sharing information encouraging people to use their voice and supporting them, that that gives me uh, a sense of purpose out of this disease. And it helps me. I have a saying, Lisa, I, I sometimes catch myself awfulizing. And awfulizing for me would be sometimes a long time during a day. What will happen if this happens? And then that. And who will take care of this? And when I had my kids younger, well, who will care for them, et cetera. So anyway, I try to keep awfulizing to a set time and maybe, okay, Shirley, you got 10 minutes if you want to awfulize. And I got this from a, a minister whose church I attended. He said, Shirley, 10 minutes, no more. And so anyway, so the combination of curbing my awfulizing, keeping my head to the ground with my work. And then trying to find fun in life. And I have a a younger son who loves to travel to far off places. And until COVID, I would go with him. And so I've been, I've enjoyed travel. And so maybe a long answer to your question, but that's how I handle it. I appreciate that. We, we always ask a question on the podcast. Mental health means a lot to us here on our team. And so we ask every guest, but you just, you went right ahead and you answered it. We, COVID's been difficult. So how have you managed with COVID, with the restrictions, you can't travel, see your family like you normally would. So how have you been able to cope during this time? I appreciate the fact that social media exists. That really make me seem ancient, but like in 2003, four, five, when I was first diagnosed, diagnosed social media wasn't highly developed, but now we can talk to each other through Zoom or the, our cell phones. I almost said the phone, but cell phones. And it's something that you have to say, we're all in this together and try to keep up the relationships as best we can. And we, I think the vaccine, which 
ultimately I was able to get both doses. That made me feel good. So I don't, it's just the one thing that I think that COVID benefited metastatic breast cancer people is that the public learned about what clinical trials were and how you just don't pull a treatment like a vaccine out of the hat, that Mm -hmm. it takes time for people to develop it in the lab, test it on people, then get FDA approval, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we live through when we're waiting for that next treatment. Will there be another treatment? And and that and then COVID has been hard on metastatic breast cancer patients. We've had some webinars about this because people have hesitated. I was scheduled to see my oncologist and she said, Shirley, we're canceling that. You're not coming in. And it was like, why? And, you know, then you realize that people, even the doctors are concerned back then. This was March. It's hopefully going to get better, but I think some places are celebrating a little too soon. That's enters the realm of politics and that's not part of our purpose today. Sure. You mentioned clinical trials, right? And that it's great. I think there's some silver linings in that the greater population understands, you know, what it, at least they're starting to hear more about clinical trials for those that don't live in this constant state of mm-hmm. cancer and clinical trials and illness and all of that. So we just finished two episodes, two part series on clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And so we asked all of our guests, why hasn't breast cancer been cured yet? And we got some really interesting answers. So we'd love to hear what you think. Breast cancer. I believe has not been cured yet. I should say breast cancer is a complex disease. It has many types, many, and even subtypes within a subtype. Like I mentioned earlier on, estrogen positive breast cancer can be responsive to treatment, not responsive, and it can mutate into another form or subtype and change back again. We have made progress in some areas using the immune system in in certain types. We need to understand more about how breast cancer evolves. And when I listen to experts talk, and I do listen to those conferences and different things, what I'm persuaded by is that we really need to put an emphasis on genetic testing and genomic sequencing. And that scientists need to have real world blood samples and tissue samples to understand how uh, the disease evolves. And I'm hopeful through, there's a project, I'm, I'm one of two patient advocates on called Aurora USA. Evelyn Lauder, who was part of the cosmetic industry, when she passed away, her cosmetic jewelry was auctioned off. Okay, cosmetic. And up came a big sum of money. Now, if you auctioned my cosmetic (laughs) jewelry, you wouldn't probably have a train ticket. But anyway, (laughs) but, but as a result of that, the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and Dr. Larry Norton established Aurora Europe and Aurora USA. And anyway, where I'm headed with this in the interest of time is in the Aurora USA project. They have samples of people who had breast cancer, but have passed away. And they've have a prospective study of newly diagnosed people who have agreed to give blood and biopsy samples. And their goal, and the, and these are superb scientists and researchers from different comprehensive cancer centers. They're trying to understand how does the disease evolve? And the hope is that with newly diagnosed patients, if we can have better treatment regimen, we might be able to, if not cure them, at least make it a chronic disease, which I do not believe metastatic disease is yet a chronic disease. I did hear one, I'll end with this for this question. I did hear a gentleman from California oncologist, and he said the only way, once you are diagnosed with breast cancer, the only way you know that you are truly cured is if you die of something else. And I thought, 
And I guess what that meant to me, or he was implying, is that even in cases where people have, quote, been successfully treated for early stage, because the cure is the goal there, that they never can be totally sure that there isn't some isolated group of cells somewhere that could, cancer cells that could emerge. And we don't even know why they emerge suddenly. I, I just think there's, it, it's not been cured yet because there's, we still need more research which is a whole nother reason why we need the federal government to, to spend more money on research, give more money to NCI, the DOD, et cetera. And advocate, yeah. one thing that the, I have to give a little plug for NBCN and the wonderful women, many of whom are gone today. But when we were first working together, one of the sayings that we developed was stage four needs more. And at one conference in at the University of North Carolina, I was giving the, the hello, welcome address, and I made some comments about the need for research. And I said, we all need to go back home and tell those who have the power to spend money on research, stage four needs more. And we do. Right now, only we know that 7% of funds of funded grants are spent, only 7% is spent on metastatic breast cancer research. The Alliance now is going to do a, a, a revisit to that. And NBCN has agreed to put some money to that to, to help support it. But we're going to see is that is more a per, the percentage of research on metastatic disease. Has that gone up or has it gone down? It's an important number to use when you're advocating. And more important, statistics do make a difference if you're sitting down with a legislator or some other important person that wants to fund money uh, research. Yes, I agree with you. The stats need to be verified, and that's going to be really important. I'm looking forward to that, especially when you have people who have, I think it's still, I think we still say that it's 30% of people who are early stage are at risk of it metastasizing and becoming stage four. Yeah, and that 30% is a little bit uh, was challenged. And I think I've heard more now somewhere 20 to 30. Yes, that's right. I, I guess that's true. We should mention that. Because it, everything needs to be, and so we have accuracy. And, and right. But right. It, it's a tough thing because when you go through early stage, you want to be get done with it. You don't even want to hear about it anymore, which is sure. another, I was there. I didn't want to hear about breast cancer anymore. And so I'm not too quick to attack early stage breast cancer people who say, oh, I don't want to hear about metastatic disease, because you don't, but I welcome when they join us. Yeah, those early stage allies, they they deserve like special awards, <laughs> special <laughs> medals uh, for help, for it's being partners okay. with us. They are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So a final question, and you've just been brilliant, as we knew you would be. Looking ahead, what are you optimistic about as you look at the landscape for metastatic breast cancer advocacy? And what do you see as the biggest challenge? I think the, the biggest challenge is to continue to realize more funding for metastatic breast cancer research. And to, with that, I think needs to come a greater definition of just what is important that would really make a difference in seeing the number of deaths for people living with metastatic disease. And hormone positive, excuse me, HER2 positive breast cancer has made great leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. They have wonderful choices of treatments and women with that subtype are living long. And that's great. In fact, the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium wants to do a, a study to see if in fact, people with that subtype in some cases are cured that we could say we've cured people with metastatic breast cancer who have HER2 disease. The problem, the, the ch big challenge is triple negative breast cancer. I'm sure your listeners know they call it triple negative because they don't know what's fueling the cancer cells to grow, not progesterone, not estrogen, um, not HER2. So I think that's where my hope is that there will be more research with immune immunotherapy that could help that type. So I'm hopeful. I want to stay involved as long as I can. I'll, I realize there'll become a day when I need to hang up my advocacy key or whatever you call it. But <laughs> I love being invigorated by the young 
And I like to make a plug for people like yourself who are young and who are involved, energized. You're so important to the future of advocacy. And I hope that I appreciate, Lisa, the fact that you invited me to be part of this interview because I am, uh, how you say, I've been around a long time. And often I, I have met younger advocates who say, we need just the young to lead us forward. And I think the young women are very important to advocacy and they understand the situations, they understand technology. But I appreciate very sincerely with my heart that you recognize that there was a history that preceded and that history was has been built upon with new pillars that are ever more important. And the more we can all work together, the better off we're going to be. I, I bless you and your group for doing this at so much. And I don't want to cry, but it means a lot to me. I will remember this always. So thank you. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, with the help of our new production intern, Connor Kinsley, and our senior team, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, and we've benefited from expert sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens and Samantha Silverstein. Our social media is also supported by Dar Finkelstein, Campbell McCoon, and Bailey Smith. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. Season 3 is coming just around the corner the week of September 20th, and we would love to hear from you.